a joy it is to be gathered with uh, brothers and sisters on a beautiful day and under the blessing of protection from our government, which is really wonderful because not all the world experiences that. Anyway, it's good to be with you. It's a joy to be with you this weekend. And so we're going to look at a topic this morning that normally isn't addressed very often within the, the church structure. And that is, why did God create us as sexual beings? We're not supposed to talk about that in church, right? Well, I think it's very important that we talk about it. And the topic is not just about sexuality. It's about knowing God. I, I just want you to hear that. It's about knowing God. God has a plan and a design, and we want to look at what that is. So many of you weren't here over the weekend. Uh, the topic title, or the weekend title, is Foundations for Life. And the purpose of that title is to show that the series that we put together is designed to help people heal, heal from, from missing links that have, that have caused hurts and problems in people's lives. And I, ca I call them the foundations that it takes for people to live healthy living. Uh, the number one is wrong concepts of God. So we looked at that Friday night. We looked at wrong concepts of identity. People have multiple identities, and a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. We need a completing identity to know who we are as a child of God so that we can function well and not be all over the place with the way we make choices and decisions. And then uh, knowing how to forgive. We have wrong concepts of forgiveness. We know it's important. We, know how, we need to know how to forgive, but we don't understand how. And we know we need to, but we don't know how. And so that was what we looked at yesterday. And also learning how to live out of our spirit. Anyway, that was in the past. This morning we want to look at two topics. And the first one is going to be why did God create us as sexual beings? And we titled it The Mystery of Intimacy, which hopefully you'll see why. Okay, there is a mystery that Paul talks about. And he talks about this mystery of intimacy. And then the second one we are actually, if, you, if you've looked at what the program says that we're going to be talking about, I actually switched the topics. I want to change it to, to the very teaching called Foundations for Life. So let's begin. Good to have you join us. So the mystery of intimacy. What is the mystery of intimacy? Well, we are, we are created for relationships. God designed us for relationships. He created us to have relationship with him. The fall was all about damaging and destroying relationships. Satan did not want us to have a close relationship with God, and so he did everything he could to cause us to doubt who God was and what God was really like. The gospel, the good news of, that, that Jesus brought, is to restore relationships. God is Trinity, and many people have tried to come up with ideas of how to describe what Trinity is. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's beyond our comprehension how that God is one God and yet he can be three, three in one. And so theologians came up with this term called perichoresis, a Greek word, and it means being in one another, an intimate connectedness. How that you have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're individual character qualities and individual beings, but they comprise one God. And that's hard for us to comprehend. But he also created us as Trinity. We are mind, will, and emotions, and we're spirit, soul, and body. And he wants those to work well together. And so it's sort of an analogy 
and, and a type of, of who God is. True intimacy reaches beyond romance into the very heart of God. And all, all we have to do is, is look at the amount of effort and energy that Satan is putting into it to destroy marriage and sexuality. Uh, he, he is just focusing on it. Our world is being deluged with, with ways to, that Satan is using to damage mankind through their sexuality. It tells us how important this is to God or Satan would not be throwing so much energy and effort and money into, into destroying mankind in this area. So I believe that the greatest tool for overcoming sexual sin, the greatest reason for youth to guard their purity until marriage, is understanding God's divine mystery, his plan for intimacy with us. And so let's look at it. The first Adam, God created Adam, and he put him into a, a deep sleep, and he took a rib from his side, and he formed Eve. And the very first command that was given was for Eve to go back and join herself to her husband, to her mate, in, in a sexual relationship. And it says, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Well, that's, that's the first command that was given. Go back and Eve, join yourself to your source, which is Adam, and life would flow from Adam into Eve, and out of Eve would flow the multitudes of people who would replenish the earth. Okay, that was the first command was, was sexual intimacy. Fascinating to think about. The second Adam, okay, we I put an explanation up there, but the second Adam, the second Adam, Jesus, his bride, the church, was birthed out of his side. Out from his side flowed blood and water. And that birthed his bride, the church, and the church is to go back and, and become one with, his, with its source, Jesus, and life would flow from him into us and out of our bellies would flow rivers of living water that would propagate the family of God. You see, there's an analogy that I think is pretty hard to, 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 to not see. Here's Paul explaining where we get the term, the, the uh, mystery of intimacy. He says, I've become its servant, the gospel servant, by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is, who knows what that mystery is? Christ in you. The hope of glory. Now, I, I, want you to, I don't want you to think that I'm going to over-sexualize Scripture. But you know God designed us for intimacy. And he designed man and woman for intimacy. And here it says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. There is no greater intimacy to, than to have Christ in you and you in Christ. There is a oneness there, and God intends that. It's throughout the Scriptures. And maybe I'll have it up in my screen later on, but in, in the high priestly prayer in John 17, uh, Jesus is telling the Father, he's talking to the Father, and he's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to tell you that, that they may be one, even as you and I are one, I and you, you and me, I and them, they and me, so that we can be one. You see, there's this intimate relationship that God wants to have with us. 
It, here it is. I do have it there. The glory that you gave me, I've given them, that they may be one just as we are one. Okay? And then Paul's, one of Paul's favorite expressions is, is, don't you know, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Now stop and think about that. Oftentimes we think that the spiritual relationship has to do with our soul and our spirit. But here you see Paul is saying, don't you know that your body is the temple of the living God? Don't you know our, that our bodies are members of Christ himself? He's not talking about our spirit and soul. He's talking about our, a body. And he continues. Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Now, what's he trying to say here? He says, don't you know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body, for it is said the two will become one flesh. So why would he use the word prostitute here? Why wouldn't he just say he who unites himself with a woman? He's talking to the church at Corinth. Does anybody know what the church at Corinth was like? Does anybody know what Corinth was like? It was like New York City. It was like, it was like L.A. It was, it was a port city. It, it, was, it was a place, it, Corinth was on this four-mile uh, section of land that divided one sea and another sea. And, if you, and, you, and so it was a place where you could take your goods and you could transport it four miles by land and get into another uh, ship and it would be so much quicker than going months down around Africa and back up the other side. You see, it was a city of trade, and there, were the, there was, where the city of trade was, it was full of, it was full of crime and sex and, and, and sin. It was sin city. And there was a temple there, the Temple of Athena. And there were, someone, history tells us there was, there was around 1,200 temple prostitutes, male and female, who would come down out of the temple to ply their trades. And actually having sex with one of those prostitutes was part of worship to the god Athena. And so what he's saying here is, is, is don't you know that when you are worshiping your god in that way, you're becoming one, and she's a prostitute. Don't do that. But now watch the, watch the analogy. It's, it's, it's amazing. He's saying, don't you know that he who joins himself with a prostitute becomes one with her? But look what else he says. The two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Do you see there, the, the analogy between sexual intimacy and the relationship that God wants to have with us, that we're to have with Christ, is, is the analogy is there? That's the mystery of intimacy. It, I think it's pretty undeniable. And, and it, it means to unite, become one. He who unites himself, kalu, to glue together, to cement. And I, I know we have some woodworkers here. Who can tell me what happens when you take two pieces of wood and you have them you prepared and you put glue on and you clamp them together and when that dries can you pull it apart where it's glued does anybody know you ever try that what happens when you try and tear it apart the wood splinters yeah it don't come across the blue the glue doesn't break if it's good wood glue it doesn't break the wood splinters you see that's what god intends for for marriage to do that's what he intends for our relationship with our mates to be like, that's what he wants it to be like with his relationship with us, that we become one. And once again, here's that word, parachoresis, 
don't you know that you form an intimate connectedness when in this physical relationship and even in your spiritual relationship with Christ? Now, Paul continues, and you know, we have a bunch of singles here, and we have, we have singles here. I want you to hear something. The person in the scriptures who talk more about sexuality is a single man. So um, I, I just want you to hear, God designed, even if you're single, he still designed you as a sexual person. Every one of us is designed with sexuality. God wants us to know how to deal with that in a healthy, wise, and pleasing to him way. So it has to do with every single one of us. It doesn't matter whether we're married or single. This, this is truth that goes across the board. He says, every sin that a man does is outside his body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. God takes sexuality, sexual sin very, very seriously. And, I, and, I, and here's why. Because he designed sexuality to show us the kind of relationship, the intimate kind of relationship he wants to have with us. He gave us sex for that reason. And when we violate that, we're actually violating the very heart of God. We're damaging his plan and his purpose for oneness with us. It's so important for us to see that. He says, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? He, he's not saying your soul. He's saying your body and I think we need to realize that. And then he continues. He says, don't you know? And he says, he is in you. That the Holy Spirit is in you. And here's, here's something very interesting. Is, is you see, when we, when we commit sexual sin, the sacred is profaned because your body don't belong to you. It belongs to God, and you're sinning with, your, with the temple of God. Does that make any sense? Okay? We're violating the temple of God. The sacred is profane. Your body is sacred. It is years ago. Okay, here we are with our, our Anabaptist heritage. How many know what they called the place where, where, where the church would gather on Sunday mornings? What did the old Anabaptists call it? What did they call it? The meeting house. Why didn't they call it the church? The church is the people. The church would go. This is not a church. This is a building where the church meets. And so our, our forefathers had that well, and they said it was the meeting house. They were going to the meeting house. Why? It's because that's where the church meets. The, years ago, you would go to the temple. In the, old, in the old law, you would go to the temple, and they would cleanse the temple. Well, now the temples go to the meeting house, and God wants us to have cleansed temples because our body is the temple of the living God. So he wants us to see that. He wants us to handle it preciously and with purity because our bodies are where Christ dwells. The sacred is profane. And it's a spirit wound. You know, I, I, I spent a lot of time with hurting people over the years. And, you know, every single one of us has injuries and wounds. I, I told you I crushed my finger in a log splitter years ago. And, you know, that was pretty painful. Uh, but every one of us has, has, has wounds and problems. But I never sat with somebody who says, you know, I was playing volleyball and somebody spiked the ball and hit me in the nose, broke my nose, and I can't get over it. Wow. You know, I never, I never saw that. I never, I never dealt with that. Or I was playing football and I got tackled and I broke my leg. And, man, I just can't get over it. That, that, that guy hurt me so bad. And I, I, never, I never dealt with that. But I can promise you, I sat with many, many, many people who were touched inappropriately sexually. And they can't get over it. You see, 
it's a spirit wound. It's a wound that goes way beyond the physical body. Here's something else that's interesting. Sex is not something you do with your physical bodies. Our, our world is trying to convince us that sex is just another recreational sport. And if you take somebody out to eat, they owe you something. Uh, it is, it, that's what's happening in our world. And that's what you see with our movie stars, our sports stars, our heroes. You know, no, they shouldn't be our heroes. Just telling you, it is just, it is just what our world is pumping and pushing on us all the time. And you think that don't affect us? Yes, it does. We start, we start seeing, we start thinking, we start absorbing some of those thoughts and, and concepts and ideas. No, it is, it is something that you want to guard and protect with everything you have within you because it is, when we damage that part of us, it's a spirit wound and it, it, it will have lasting impact. Not that you can't heal, not that you can't get over it. Yeah. Um, he says, don't you know that God gave him to you? He gave you the Holy Spirit. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Once again, your body don't belong to you. Therefore, he goes, therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You see, all of you belong to him. And so he wants all of us to glorify God by the way we live our lives. It's, it's a beautiful picture. This is God's plan. It's the mystery of intimacy. Look what he says here in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Do you know what, he said? He, do you know what he's not saying? He's not saying the body isn't meant for sex. He says it's not, being, it's not meant for sexual immorality. Yeah. So if you, if you read the, the highlighted in red, look what, it, just, read, just read the highlighted in red, and some of you probably can't see it, but here's what it says. It, it, when in, this, in the verse it says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. What I have highlighted in red says, the body is meant for the Lord, and the Lord is meant for the body. Okay? Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. The body is meant for the Lord, and the Lord is meant for the body. Yeah. Therefore, he goes, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Here I am, Lord. My body belongs to you. Lead me. I'll do what you would have me to do. Holy and pleasing to God. And look what it says. This is your spiritual act of worship. Isn't that amazing? That when we offer our bodies holy and acceptable to God, it's a spiritual act of worship. When you say, I am not going there, I am going to give my body to the Lord in holiness, you are actually worshiping God. That's what Paul is telling us. That's amazing. I, I see that the Bible views sexuality primarily as a way to know Christ and to build his kingdom. That's how I see the Bible teaches that sex is very good. God would not create and command something to be done in marriage that was not good. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling, a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You see, this is just, it just goes on and on and on. In the Old Testament, there were two terms that meant sexual union. The first one is yada, and that's to know. It implies time spent together, having intimate knowledge of each other, of getting to know each other's hearts and, and, and getting to know each other as people 
through conversation, shared experience. It's what I encourage couples when they're dating. We're, we do a preparing for marriage weekend, and I have brochures up here, so you're welcome to come up and get them after. But in about, uh, in about five weeks, we do a preparing for marriage weekend. That came out of our need to know more, and also after we were ordained, people would come, and they wanted to... Uh, wanted us to marry him, and I decided I wouldn't marry couples unless we could sit down and talk with them. Now we're doing a weekend. I believe in prevention. We can prevent marriage problems. I worked, we, we spent so much energy trying to help hurting marriages. It's about time we start preventing the problems. I believe you can prevent 90% of the problems. The other 10%, you got to get to know each other. So anyway, uh, it's a pretty intense weekend. It's a Friday evening, two sessions, and Saturday all day till about 6 o'clock in the evening, 7 o'clock maybe. So anybody, you know any couples that are dating and, or, and, and maybe even just, just married, you're, you're welcome to pick up a brochure, and uh, that's coming up in about five weeks here. But, you, but it's, we, help, we want, in, in that session, we have, and there's a handbook that, that comes along with it, and in there there's a whole, there's three pages of questions of, of how to get to know each other before you get married. Questions you're gonna ask each other to, to get to know, you know, what's your background? There's one called uh, family of origin questions. So you can ask each other, well, hey, how did you handle conflict in your home? And then he would say, and then she would talk about it. How do you handle conflict? And you know what, all of a sudden you start realizing how things were dealt with in this family was totally different than this family. And you, and you start seeing how different each other are, not just because you're male and female, but because you come from different environments, family environments. So helpful. And then there's, there's questions about, uh, you know, how many children do you anticipate having? Well, what if one only wants two and the other one wants 12, okay? You know, you, you, you have to get to know each other. And, and you take these things for granted before you get, get, get married. Now, I'm just telling you, after you get married, it becomes a reality. And, those of us who are married know that. So the first term is yada, to know. And, and it said that uh, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and gave birth. The other one is to go in unto. It's just a physical for, focus uh, to go in unto. Um, Jacob said unto Laban, give me my wife for my days are fulfilled that I may go in unto her. You know, it, that's, that's, a bit, that's a bit weird. Basically, Jacob was saying, hey, Laban, I worked for you these years. Uh, uh, give, me, give me your daughter, I want to have sex with her. You know, I have a daughter, and she's married, but if my son-in-law, before we got married, would have came to me and said that to me, I don't know if he would have walked away. He might have crawled away. Okay. <laughs> now, that's, not, that's just not okay, right? But it's, it's that physical focus, and look what it says here. And it came to pass that evening that Laban took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to him, and Jacob went in unto her. And it came to pass that in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, what's this you've done to me? Now, if the first term is to know, all I can tell you is, is do you think there was much discussion going on that night before they, before, when, they went, they, when they went into that tent? Hardly, hardly. Someone, someone said that, that Jacob went to bed with Rachel and he woke up with Leah. What do you think of that? Got you on that one a little bit? Okay. In his mind, he had worked for Rachel, and he was going to bed with this gorgeous gal. And he just, yeah. And see, it was a focus. It was on lust. It wasn't on healthy, caring communication. It wasn't on healthy relationship. 
And when he woke up, behold, it was Leah. Can you imagine that conversation? Leah, Leah, last night when I whispered in your ear, Rachel, why did you go, yes, Jacob? And Leah responds, well, when your daddy said Esau, why did you say yes, daddy? You see, the deceiver got deceived. You see, you know that story. And, and it's interesting there. You see, even Laban's response, well, in our culture, the older goes first. You see, even that poked a hole in him by he usurped his older brother's blessing. So these, these, this has, anyway, pretty fascinating connotations there. Ernest Becker, here's a fascinating, fascinating man. He, he uh, is a self-proclaimed atheist, and he wrote Denial of Death. It was a New York Times bestseller. Look what he says here. He says, today people are looking for sex and romance to deliver what they used to look to religion and God for. Now that we know there is no God, what will we do to find meaning in life? The romantic solution allows us to find it in the love partner for someone outside of ourselves to make us feel great. I think the man's dead on. I mean, he's an atheist, but that's that's an awesome evaluation of what's happening in the culture around us. It really is. And so they go from one encounter to another encounter trying to find the missing thing that the, the void of God has created in them. You see, what I, and, and you're going to see this, the second message here, but God designed three needs in us. Belonging, love, and significance. And we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this now because we're going to talk about it very soon here. But you see, God gave his son those three things, belonging, love, and significance. This is my beloved son. I'm well pleased with him. Hear him. This is my son. That's belonging. This is my beloved son. That's loved. I am well pleased with him. That's significance. I am convinced that God created in every one of us the need for those three things. And if we don't get them, we, we search for them. When missing, we pursue them, and we strain relationships. Um, it's, it's often the thing that moves a young man and a young woman into a sexual encounter because they were not given those foundational needs in their home. And so there's this void, and they're looking for it and yearning for it. And they seek unhealthy replacements, and those unhealthy replacements become idols of the heart, power, approval, comfort, control. Or we medicate with physical God substitutes. I became a workaholic. Okay, sports, money, drugs, alcohol, sex, which they can all produce a high, but they do not deliver relief or lasting satisfaction. But it's, it's actually a, a yearning and a striving to get the missing links or the voids that are in our lives. John says, this is, this is Jesus saying, Jesus said, said this, this is eternal life that they might know you. The only true and living God and your son, the Christ. Don't you know, Paul says, that you yourselves are God's temple and the God's spirit lives in you? We are members of his body. Look at this. Listen, why, why is marriage? Why do you get married? Look what it says here. We are members of his body. You are a member of his body. Young people, you, by being a believer, are a member of Christ's body. And look what it says. 
Therefore, this reason, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two will become flesh. The very purpose for marriage is because we are members of his body. You see, when God designed humankind and, and, the, and the, the structures for social life, he designed marriage, he designed family, parents and children. He designed it all to reflect back on the kind of relationship he wants to have with us. And so when we get involved with these relationships, we, just for example, getting married, having children, you know, that, that, he says, it's this reason, for this reason. What reason? Because we're already members of Christ's body. Now we fulfill that plan and it, it blossoms and it bears fruit. He goes, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. This is the mystery of intimacy. I'm talking about Christ in the church. After he talks all about husbands and wives for verses, he gets down to the end and he says, but I'm really talking about Christ in the church. Amazing. Intimacy. It's the greatest need in men and women. Uh, intimacy is what we long for, yearn for. But it's, it's something that few people ever achieve, even in marriage. So what is intimacy? What is intimacy? Well, it's an emotional closeness to another. It's to know and to be known. You cannot have intimacy without vulnerability, and that's the problem. Mm. You can't have intimacy without vulnerability. What's, what is vulnerability? Well, vulnerability is offering to another my willingness to be known. And here's the challenge. It's so much easier to let somebody know your body than it is to let them know what's going on inside. And that's what God wants you to do in courtship and dating is to develop a deep friendship. He wants you to develop emotional intimacy and spiritual intimacy so that when you get married, now that is the foundational basis for your physical intimacy. And when that happens first, in the right order, then physical intimacy is something that God designed to provide an ecstasy that's beyond comprehension. But when the first doesn't happen, the second gets old before long. It's something that has to be maintained by the first emotional and spiritual intimacy and staying on top of that. That's God's design. And you see, it's no different than his relationship with us. We start out with him. We believe in him. We, we get this awesome experience of being adopted as sons and daughters. But if we don't stay connected to him and getting to know him better by reading his word, by communicating openly with him, after a while, that relationship starts fizzling out as well. This is all a divine mystery, and it's why God designed us as sexual beings. Jesus became vulnerable so that we could know him. The problem? Shame and inadequacy. We talked about shame yesterday and, and freedom from it as we looked at forgiveness. How do I see myself? You see how we see ourselves. We talked about that when we looked at identity. We looked at two sessions on identity, one on who we are and, and the unchangeables in our lives, and then 
the shame and inadequacy that happens because of things that happened in our lives, but how we see ourselves. Are we valued? Are we significant? Are we treasured? And then there's body image. We struggle with how we present ourselves and how we are. You know, maybe we're, maybe we're too, too tall, too short, too big, too small. You know, we, we just have all these body image problems. And that creates problems. That keeps us from, from wanting to be known. And here's why. And the reason for all these inadequacies and problems is why covenant is so important and why healing the past is so important and why marriage is intended to be a healing covenant. And the reason is this, because God, God is a covenant-making and he is a covenant-keeping God. And he makes covenants with us and he, he wants us to make covenants with each other. Marriage is a covenant relationship. When you stood up front to be married, you didn't covenant to feel loving and to feel faithful and to feel caring. You promised, you promised, you covenanted to be loving, to be faithful, to be caring, to be providing, to be there. That's covenant relationship. And here's the interesting thing. We talked about love yesterday. So this whole weekend sort of flows together and intermingles. But love is not a feeling. Love can have feelings, but love is a choice. Love is a decision, and so is covenant. You covenant to love somebody, and you, that covenant, covenant is what sustains love. Love does not sustain covenant. You see, if you think love sustains covenant, well, then when you quit feeling loving and you say, I don't love this person anymore, and I have heard these stories when couples have split up and broken up and divorced, I don't feel, you know, I, 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 lost, I lost my love. You know, that's not, that's not what Revelation says about your first love. It says you left your first love. And leaving is a choice. You don't lose. You can, you can lose the feelings, but you should never leave. You should never lose love because love, true love can't be lost. Agape love cannot be lost. Agape love is a choice. You covenant, and covenant sustains that. Do you know what? Yeah, right now, I would love to just walk away from this relationship. This is, man, this is just so disgusting. It's so frustrating. It is not fulfilling. It is, in fact, it's a pain. But you know something? I promised God that I was going to stick this out, and I was going to be there, and, and, and you know what? I'm not going to, I'm going to, I'm going to keep on loving, and I'm going to, I'm going to act loving even when I don't feel loving. You see, that's, that's covenant relationship. And God has that kind of a covenant relationship with me. He says, I will, I'll leave you when I'm tired of you. Isn't that what he says? No, that's not what he says. He says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Because he's a covenant-making God. We must be a covenant-keeping people in the area of marriage and relationships. We must be. If we are not, we have no hope. And because marriage is a type of Christ in the church, when we... When we throw that towel in on that, we're throwing the towel in on Christ in the church. We are. It's, it's, I'm sorry. I, I, know, I know the hurt and the pain that's out there. I know the hurt and the pain that's here this morning. I know that. I understand that. I'm not trying to be painful and, and hurtful. I'm just telling you, we've got to treasure the things. We've got we to gotta place our loves in the right order. And we've got to realize that love is a choice. Then Sarah said to Abraham, 
You're responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my servant in your arms. I put my servant in your arms. And now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Now, I want, I want you to see what's happening here. I want you to see what's happening here. I don't know about you. I can get pretty ticked at Sarah. You know, she's the one that had the idea. Then she gets really angry and upset. Okay. I, I have no idea. I wasn't there. Couldn't see the dynamics. Don't know. All I can tell you, well, never mind. I'll, I'll, I won't go there. But, you know, here, here Sarah says, hey, Abraham, we can't have a child. Here, take Hagar. All I can tell you is probably Hagar was pretty young a lady. And here's a, here's a dried up old prune. And he was probably pretty normal. But it was her idea. Abraham wasn't breaking the covenant. She was. But you see, Abraham disobeyed. He, did, he should have said, do you know what? God promised me. I'm not gonna, I don't have to fulfill this on my own. So I'm not blaming Sarah. It's Abraham's responsibility. Okay? It really is. But anyway, look what happens here. I want you to focus on Hagar. I want you to focus on Hagar. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. You see, there he was being irresponsible again. So Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar. The angel of the Lord. Who do you think the angel of the Lord was? Does anybody have any idea who the angel of the Lord was? Huh? Yes, it was Jesus. Yeah, the angel of the Lord back there with Hagar was Jesus. It was. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring. How do we know that? We'll We'll know here really shortly. Okay? And he said, Hagar, the servant of Sarai, where have you come from? Where are you going? I'm, and she goes, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress, submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so that they will be too numerous to count. You see, if that wasn't Jesus, he couldn't, he couldn't be the one promising to multiply the seed. But I want you to hear what Sarah said. Look at this, what Hagar said. Hagar says, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. She is the first woman to give God a name. She is the first woman to give God a name. And she goes, you are the God who sees me. That's intimacy. She saw that the Father could see her. You know, maybe you're going through some really challenging times. And maybe you don't know what the answer is. Hagar, was, was, she was between a rock and a hard place. She was put out in the desert. She didn't know where to go. And God came and talked to her. Jesus came and talked to her. And Sarah goes, you are the God who sees me. You see, God wants us to see each other. That's intimacy. Into me, he sees. But we need to see into each other. We have to, that intimacy is the willingness to allow yourself to be known. That's scary. That's scary because you open yourself up to rejection. But that's why it's important for you to develop emotional and spiritual intimacy while you're dating because if you get rejected on that stage, then you want out and you want to find the right person, not the person who won't be willing to be known. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Uh, you know, I don't know, I don't know what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. But look, it says, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Are, you, are we making ourselves ready for the, for the groom to return for us? And then it says, eye has not seen nor ear has heard nor has it entered into the heart of man what lies in store for those who love him. I, I, you know, 
I believe God gave us sexuality to give us just a little bit of a taste of what it's going to be like when Jesus returns. And I have no idea what that's like. I'm not trying to sexualize the return of Christ. I'm just telling you, he gives us a little taste of something physical that we can identify with to show us what kind of a, a, a beyond our comprehension experience it's going to be like when Jesus returns for us. I have no clue. It says my eye hasn't seen, my ear hasn't heard, nor has anybody else what lies in store for those who love God. I can t- all I can tell you is, is when Jesus comes back, it's going to be one fabulous experience. And the bride better be ready. Yeah. <clears throat> Sexual immorality will consume your flesh. It will consume your body, your heart, your mind in an altogether different, destruct- differently destructive way than any other sin. Paul teaches that. Proverbs teaches that. It's throughout the scriptures. Every other sin is outside the body. Sexual sin is against your own body. Flee sexual immorality. It may save you from ruining your life. You know, it says that we're to put on the whole armor of God. We're supposed to stand against the wiles of the devil. But when it comes to sexual immorality, it says you can't stand against it. When you, when you flirt with that, you're going down. Put on your sneakers and run. I, I see it as like sexuality is like a beautiful river. I lo- I, we love rivers. Our dream someday would be to live overlooking a river and, because rivers are just beautiful. Do you love rivers? And, and you know what? Rivers just flourish with life. Inside the river, there's, there's fish. There's all kinds of life flourishing in the river. Alongside the, you know, the, the, it's green. There's, you know, it looks like they're using the river maybe to irrigate. It's just a lush area. But you see, that's what sexuality is like. And sexuality within the banks of marriage becomes a powerful, beautiful tool. But when it gets out of the banks, it becomes so destructive. And some of you can't see, but up there is the picture of what happens when it gets out of the banks. Okay, that's a couple of years ago. You remember with the flooding in the Midwest, but in Arkansas it said there was $175 million of flood damage to the, farm, to the farming community there. Uh, we, we have had floods back home that were devastating. Agnes, many years ago, it, it just was devastating. Devastating. You can't stop water. It's going to go wherever. And it's so destructive. And, and you, the power of our sexuality... The power of our sexuality makes it inherently dangerous. It must be managed responsibly. When it's mismanaged, it can leave a devastating impact for a lifetime. It brings destruction. It brings death. It brings life in in ways that somebody's going to have to deal with in a way that God never intended. Our God built our physical sexuality on the model of spiritual intimacy, of one spirit, of one spirit to be intimately joined to another spirit and by that intimacy knit persons together in a shared life. That's God's plan. He built our physical sexuality on the model of spiritual intimacy between one spirit and another. His spirit, our spirit, our spirit with each other. Yeah, it is this capacity that makes sex so damaging when misused. Okay, we're done. I cut a lot of material out. Bart. Could you touch a little bit on, uh, I know you don't have a lot of time questions in depth, but touch on a bit hard on the physical immorality, how does pornography or 
it is. It, Well, you see, what has happened with pornography is, is we're allowed to go into areas where God never intended us to go, okay? And, and, and when you are looking at porn, and it's, whether it's guys or gals, it doesn't matter. When you're looking at porn, you are committing, you're committing adultery in your heart. It's heart adultery. It, it is actually, it's, it's unfaithfulness to your spouse, Okay? You're violating God's plan for, for your intimate relationship emotionally, physically, spiritually with your spouse. And pornography short circuits that. And that's, the ener- that's where Satan is putting so much money and energy and effort into. And, and all we have to do is grab our smartphones and we have access 24-7 to the most vilest stuff. And, and you see... Uh, and now, now here I am, you're asking that question, I'm talking, and I switched topics for this morning. I was going to talk about the inner versus outer motivation for doing what's right, and I changed it, so I'll have to come back next year. No, never mind, I'm sorry, I don't mean, I didn't mean that, honestly, I didn't. Uh, but but that's, why we, that's, why, that's, why we must de- that's why we must develop an inner motivation to do what's right. External laws will never keep you from porn. You have to have, and, and, and in that teaching, I, I put the highest court in, in heaven is God. The highest court on earth is your conscience. You're frowning. Phil challenged me on that one this morning too. But it's your conscience guided by the Holy Spirit. Okay, you ever read, the, you ever hear that poem called The Man in the Glass? Look it up sometime, it was written in 1934. I used to remember his name. I can't. I have that. I had it up there. But the man in the glass, because you see, if you can look the man in the glass in the eyes, the woman in the glass in the eyes, and you can look there and say, he's a man of integrity, he's a woman of integrity, then you can be all right. Paul's answer to the Sanhedrin, he says, he says, my defense is that I have lived before God and before men with a clear conscience. Our conscience is what has to keep us focused on doing the right thing. It's the only thing, because you see, in the privacy of, of my bedroom, in the privacy of my vehicle, I can take, nobody knows, has to know where I'm going with my cell phone. I can do that without Grace knowing, without anybody else knowing. I can erase history, although when you erase it, it still don't get erased. It just gets erased in your, what you think is. They can trace that stuff for the rest, and that's another thing. You ought to be terrified what you look for on, on, the, on your phone or on the Internet. So anyway, I'm going. I, I went off on tangent. The children are done with Sunday school. So anyway, Phil. Oh, oh. Thank, thank you, Phil. Yes, absolutely. Listen, listen. God is a redeemer God. He is a restorer. He, he, there is nothing that he can't f- restore. Sometimes we will always deal with the consequences. We can't always get rid of consequences, but we can get rid of guilt. We can get rid of sin. We can get rid of shame because God is a restorer. He will forgive us. He will heal us. He is the healer. That's why he read from Isaiah when he stood in the temple. He came to, yes. We, we, confession 
confession. If we confess our sins, he is faithful, he is just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can be totally, our slate can be wiped clean. That's the kind of God we have because he loves us so much. So don't, um, and thank you so much for that because, uh, you know, I know I talk to a lot of young people. We have a, a, young, uh, a ministry for encouraged young men. Uh, anyway, neither here nor there. We talk to a lot of young men and we hear the stories of failure. God is a redeeming God. He is a cleansing and a healing God. Thank you for that. We've titled The Weekend, Foundations for Life. This message is entitled Foundations for Life. Um, if we don't have foundations to build on, and thank you for Jeff for reminding us that there is no other foundation that we can lay, and that's Jesus Christ. He is the chief cornerstone. And then he gives us his word, and his word has life in it. He said, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Well, the words that God the Father spoke into his son's life, Jesus' life, are spirit and they are life. And I would like to look at those this morning because I believe that those words that Jesus heard from his father hold a huge key to how we handle life. And I believe that God's intent was that these, these three foundational things that God, that Jesus heard from his father, we need to hear those. Parents need to speak it into their children. The church needs to speak it to each other as brothers and sisters. Husbands need to speak it to wives, and wives need to speak it to husbands. I call them the foundations for life. And so let's, let's take a look at that. What I end up seeing in dealing with hurting people is that people are bound by missing links. And every one of us knows that if you have a chain that has missing links, you're not going to bind anything because those missing links will take the strength away from its ability to bind. But it's fascinating when I look at what people are struggling with, I see that people are bound by these links that are missing. And I believe that every one of us can receive these links. And so I, my heartbeat in putting the teaching together over the years and even presenting it fairly frequently, but this one especially, I believe that people can be healed this morning, here, now, by the power of the Word of God bringing healing into our lives. And so I would like to present to you the foundations for life that I believe we can receive this morning if you don't have it. Some of you do. Some of us have it in various forms. But God wants us to receive this. So let's take a look at it. Two categories of trauma, one harmful by their presence, and we all know what that is of you know, different words of, of abuse and verbal abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, you name it. Things that are harmful by presence, traumas that come into our lives. But the one that we hardly ever focus on is the ones that are harmful by their absence. And I believe that those are almost more traumatic. They, they're, not, they don't, they're not externally and physically, we're not aware of them as being trauma, but they're still there. So what's harmful by absence? Well, not experiencing unconditional love. 
Someone who will listen, understand, and care. Is there anybody here that doesn't long to have somebody who would listen, understand, and care? I, I just believe it's, it's what we long for. Somebody to really care about us. And, and when that's been missing, we ache. And there's, a, there's an unmet need inside. And, and I, I look around and I see this is very, very prevalent. Number two, not, in, not knowing the joy of being a delight. Is there anybody here that doesn't want to be a delight in somebody's eyes? Uh, every one of us longs to be a delight in someone's eyes. And, and how, do you, how do you give somebody delight? It says that God delights in us. And we can, we can delight in each other. How do, you, how do you communicate delight? I think so much of communicating delight is with our eyes and with our facial expressions. It's something that I've, uh, I've tried to been doing with my grandchildren. I have four grandchildren. And I try to do it with my children, and I, I try to do it with Grace as well. But, okay, if, uh, I, you know, I think I bumped you on the arm a little while ago, but I don't know your name. Maybe you told me, and I don't remember, but my name's Jason. My name's Weston. Weston? Hi. But now, if I approach this differently and I go, hey, my name's Jason. My name's Weston. Good to see you, Weston. Oh, you too. Yeah. Yeah, is there a difference? What's the difference? I'm happy now. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you see, y y facial expressions, facial expressions, eyes communicate delight. Steve, man, it's great to see you. Jason. It really is. And you know, when I came out of the bathroom, there was, there was Cephas and Hannah. She disappeared on me. Debbie, there's Debbie. And you, did you see delight in my eyes? Man, I just lit up. I actually think I started running toward you. Yeah. It's just because, you know what? I, I just delighted in them. You see, we can give each other delight. Do you delight in her? Huh? Yeah, she needs to see it on your face, man. All right. Okay. Awesome. You see, we can give delight to each other. And there's not a person here who doesn't long to be delighted in. Raise your hand if you don't want to be delighted. No, never mind. Don't, I don't want to know. Not receiving appropriate non-sexual affection. Oh, so important, even for husbands and wives. Not receiving appropriate non-sexual affection. Our children desperately need affection. Oh, man, I could, I, I'm afraid I'll go on bunny trails on this one, but you see, it's so important. You know, Kidron, are these your daughters here? Are they really? Okay. Do you know what? They're going to need affection from you as long as they live. I have a, my, my daughter's 41 years old. She still gets hugs from me. Don't ever quit hugging those girls. You touch them sexually, you're going to mess them up for life. Okay? But you see, if you don't give them affection, you're going to leave a void in their life. And as they get into become teenagers, there's going to be this void. And they're going to be, they're going to be vulnerable to jerks that are out there. And there's lots of jerks out there. I know. I used to be one. You see... If we give our, I believe that if we fill up our daughter's love cups with healthy physical affection that's non-sexual, their hearts rest because they know they're loved, cared for, and delighted in. These must be your grandchildren. Right? Oh, man, you got, you got awesome opportunities, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. You see, but if you mess with them physically, sexually, oh, man, now you're going to do damage. Now you're going to hurt them. I, I sit and talk to so many people like that. It is beyond comprehension. I could tell you horror stories. Yeah. 
Yeah, we need appropriate non-sexual affection. Not taught the important things in life. Our children grow up needing to know how to manage money, how to make, how to, how to have manners. Do you know what? Do you know what we're missing? Parents aren't teaching their children manners anymore. To say thank you, to say please. Okay, to be respectful of each other's property. To be kind. To open the door for their siblings. I, you know, I, I, I'm so glad that my dad was very insistent on manners. We were sitting at the table. We, if we didn't say please, we didn't get it. If we'd say, hey, pass the potatoes, the potatoes wouldn't come with, if we didn't say please. Okay? You know, it's just simple things we need to teach our children the important things in life. To persist in doing hard things. You know, if we do, if we do the hard things for our children, they'll never learn that life's going to be difficult and they need to persist until they can get through to it. We've got to do this, okay? Not developing personal skills. We see a bent in our children that they really have a bent this way or that way. It says train up a child in the way they should go. We want to treat them all the same. We want to train them all the same and treat them all. No, every child is unique and different. We need to look at see how they should be trained. That, anyway, we're, we're going off. On, we're not, this isn't on parenting, but yeah, it is. Uh, okay, well, that, that goes to another teaching. Tim Keller says children start life in a state of dependency. They grow physically, but emotionally are needy, vulnerable, dependent. Either you sacrifice much of your freedom and time in a redemptive way, or they will suffer tragically in a destructive way. Man, do I see this. These are the people that I talk to. I don't talk to the grown-ups who received a lot of love and care and affection when they were children. I, I, I see the ones that have, that there was a huge void in their life. Unfortunately, plenty of parents won't make that sacrifice. In another place, he writes that if, if you have a child, you're going to spend the next 20 years uh, sacrificially living for that child. No, that doesn't, mean, that doesn't mean you're just going to do everything for him. No, no, but you're going to take 20 years out of your life. And every time you have another child, you just add a little bit more to that. Okay? That, that's pretty sobering, isn't it? In our self-centered, selfish world, we don't like that. But, but that's the way it, it really is. Eric Erickson in Childhood and Society says if a child in the very earliest years, learns not to trust the dominant personality in their life because of abuse, neglect, or abandonment, they have a fundamental inability to attach or trust. Man, that's big. And it's a taproot for all other kind of pathologies. You see, we need to, if we are, if we are the uh, dominant personality in a person's life, a mom, a dad, uncle, grandpa, Grandma, aunt, we need to be able to, our children, nieces, nephews, grandchildren need to be able to trust us completely, totally, that we are safe and everything that we do will be out of agape love because we care for them. So here's three building blocks. Here's the three building blocks to build life on that produce security, freedom, strength, and courage, and here they are. Belonging, love, and significance. You don't have to write them down because I'm going to tell you how to remember them real easy. It's real easy to remember these, but these, in order, are belonging, love, and significance. Everyone needs to know that they belong. You belong. And you know, what's interesting is, is 
here's Steve and Karen. I've known them for years. And you know something? You belong in my circle of close friends because I love you. That's belonging. Now, we don't spend a lot of time together. We don't talk to each other very often. But you know, all I got to do is see you and, man, my heart warms because you belong. We belong. You're my brother and sister. You're close friends. Yeah. Belonging is so important. And then love, healthy love that, man, you know you're loved, you're cared for. And, and then significance. You have value, you have worth. These are so foundational. Every one. I believe that God has created every single person with these three needs. Needs, not wants, needs in our life. And here's where, you, here's where it comes from. It comes from Jesus. And Peter says it so well, because Peter was present. He said, it for, it, he heard, Jesus heard this twice in public, once at his baptism, once on the Mount of Transfiguration. But it's recorded four times in the scriptures. Tells you that there's some significance here. And Peter does such an awesome job of it. Look what Peter says. Jesus received. Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my beloved son. I'm well pleased with him. Hear him. Look what's happening here. This is my beloved son. That's love. That's belonging. That's belonging. It, it is love too because there's beloved. You see, there's belonging. This is my son. He's mine. And, he, and you know what? Jesus heard it in public with other people present. And then he says, I'm well pleased with him. You know, I have listened to horror stories and sad stories about people who are just longing and still searching to get their daddy's approval, and they're adults. They still want daddy. They just long. If only daddy would just be, just, just tell me that he cares. And he, and he thinks, maybe I did an okay job. I, I, I just see it over and over and over again. A father wound is so intense. It's, but here's, listen, this is where I get totally pumped and excited about this teaching is because God's our father. And I want to show you where we can get it from him. Because he wants to give it to us. He wants us to have it from him. But anyway, here are, the, here are those foundational building blocks. I, I, a couple, about a year ago, we had a committee meeting for encouraged men. And I'm sitting there at the table and, and somebody said, hey, look over there. And here's that picture of that guy and, that, and his daughter. And I went over and I, I went over and I said, can I take a picture of you? And it, I was preaching the next day. And we had, or the two days later, and I, I said, and could I use your picture in a teaching? And he, he gave me permission. So I don't, even, I don't know their names. I don't know. It, but isn't that an awesome picture? You see the delight on her? Oh, man. And you see the delight on his face. You know, this, and do you know what it was? It was Valentine's Day. Ah! Isn't that cool? It was Valentine's Day. Aww. But here's something I believe with all my heart. If I, I tell parents all the time, capture your children's hearts and never let them go. Do you know what was happening there? That little girl's heart was getting captured. She knows her daddy was delighting in her. Guess what? All the rest of us in that restaurant were dressed up in blue jeans and work clothes. Man, 
That guy put on the dog for his little daughter. Do you think she felt important? Look, look at how she's dressed. Isn't that, man, what a date. What a date. Man, do this. Come on, come on. Do you think she feels loved, cherished, cared for, and significant? I believe, I can tell you, she just feels totally. Ah. Wasn't that awesome? <laughs> That's beautiful. Anyway, enough of that. <laughs> Jesus told them, Jesus told them that the Son of Man will be handed over to the Gentiles by his own people. He's going to be rejected and betrayed, and they were going to mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Now, Jesus was telling his disciples this. Now, here's what I believe with all my heart. I believe that God the Father knew that his son would need those three foundational things so he could get through the difficult things in life. And I believe that if we give our children these three things, and we give each other these three things, we can handle the difficult stuff in life. I believe this. But when they're missing, we will get overwhelmed. Oh, it takes a relationship with God. But you see, the Father, the Father knew what he was going to go through. Jesus knew what he was going to go through. What happens when these things are missing or damaged? A life spent trying to fill the void. This is what I see. You know, that's why if you, a, a, a young girl who never got this kind of affirmation from her, from her father, is so susceptible to a young man telling her things that will open her heart and body up to wrong attention because she's left vulnerable. I, you know, if there's, I, I don't feel like a successful father, a parent. I, I don't. I look at my family and I, I, I man, I go, hmm. But I want to tell you, there's one thing that I really feel successful in, and that's my daughter. Not everything about her, but she knew, she knew. She was my princess. I had a son and daughter. Our, our children are adopted, but that doesn't mean they're neither here nor there. They're, they're our children. But she knew, she knew she was the apple of dad's eye, and my son did too. But she, she got this because I believed. I watched. I grew up in a church where I saw the young people. There are very few of the young couples that, that grew up in my era that weren't messing up sexually. Because I knew, I mean, I just watched it. I saw it happening. It was in, it was in, our, in our culture. And I, didn't, I hated that. And I didn't want my daughter to be susceptible. And you know what? So I decided, you know, I'm going to do everything I can to, to guard her heart. And if I give her these foundations, I believed that maybe she could handle that. And I also told her, honey, you can't get married till you're 30. She didn't listen. But, but I also told her, if a young man comes and asks you to date, just tell him he has to come and talk to dad first. Because you don't have to tell him no if you don't want to date him. Just let me know you, want, you don't want to date him, and I'll get rid of him for you. You don't have, you don't have no problem. I'll take care of that. Get rid of a lot of stress in your life. But if you like him, you let me know, and I'll put him through the third degree. <laughs> Make sure. No, I didn't tell her that. But anyway, that happened three times. That's pretty cool. Scared him. Scared his guys silly. No. But you know what was really cool is the, the man she's married to now, Jim, he came, and he came to me and he says, he says, I would really like to date your daughter. I said, let's go out to eat. And we went out to eat. And I told him, I said, I'll give you my permission to date my daughter 
She's, she, you know, you're not asking me for my car, my truck, my tractor. I said, you're asking me for my daughter. She's precious to me. And I said, I'll give you permission, after we talked for quite a while, I'll give you my permission on, on two things. You're going to promise me two things. That she's always going to be safe in your presence. You're going to keep her safe. You're going to protect her. And she's going to be safe from your sexuality. You will protect her from your sexuality. Do you, do you promise me that? And he did. Do you know what was really cool? It's two, days, two weeks after they get back from their honeymoon, he came up to me. He goes, Dad, I did what you asked me to. And I cried. Okay. That's a success. That's, that's something I feel successful in. Okay. A lot of other areas I wasn't. But a life trying to fill the void. I didn't want my daughter to have to try and find to fill that void. <clears throat> performance attention driven. You ever, do you know anybody that's a performance and attention? I know you don't know anybody anyway. But you see, that's what happens. When these things are missing, escape, addictive behaviors, codependent relationships, we hook on, when, you know, when we're, we, we want this, we try and get this out of other people, and they try and get it out of us, and, and those, those needy people connect with each other, and they're not happy, but they hang on because they're codependent on each other. They're, they're desperate for this. And relationships struggle because they can't bear the weight of our neediness. You see, if, if I don't have this inside of me when I get married, now I'm going to do everything I can to get love, belonging, and significance out of grace. And I will drain her. And I did. Okay? And it stresses a relationship big time. Can you hear me, young people? Okay, it's so important that by the end of this message that you know that you can get love, belonging, and significance from your Heavenly Father. And I hope you get it from your moms and dads at home, but if you don't, you can still get it. You don't have to be vulnerable. <clears throat> Brene Brown. Anybody, anybody ever heard of Brene Brown? Okay, yeah. She, she, has, some interesting, she has some interesting teaching. She did her doctoral work. She has her doctorate, she does her doctorate, and she's not a Christian, not that I know of, but she did her doctoral work on shame. Okay, what a, what a, what a topic to do your doctoral work on. But I, do you know why I quote her here? It's because I get totally pumped when I see somebody, somebody like her who did their doctoral work and they come up with the same answers that the scriptures teach. Isn't that amazing? She says, when we, she says we are biologically, cognitively, physically, and spiritually wired to be loved and to, be belong, and to belong. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. That came out of her studies. That's amazing. And then she says, when those needs are not met, we break, we fall apart, we numb, we ache, we hurt others, and we get sick. Wow. Do you see how important these foundational things are that Jesus heard from his Father? It's powerful. You see... What happens when we're, these are missing, there's insufficient funds in our emotional bank account to deal with the challenges around us. And so then we try and find deposits to make from other people and we suck the life out of them. So then there's a capstone on these three, belonging, love, and significance. And here it says, you've forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. Does anybody know what that word of encouragement is? It's found in Hebrews 12. There's a word of encouragement that lets you know that you're a son. Do you know what it is? Who knows what the capstone is? The capstone. Don't we love it? Man, yeah. The buzzer rings, yeah. Yeah, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. You see... 
belonging, uh, discipline proves that you belong. How many of you discipline your neighbor children? Hands? A few, probably not. How many of you want to discipline your neighbor children? Hands? <clears throat> Why don't you discipline them? It's because they don't belong to you. You see, when you discipline your children, it, it, it is, it's telling them, it's letting them know. Undisciplined children do not feel loved. Isn't that amazing? It doesn't say you punish them. It says you disciple them. Discipline is, is a, a consequence discipling. It says, I belong. So here's a couple models for parenting. This is discipline built on belonging, love, and significance. There's boundaries, lovingly yet firmly placed, and it produces security and liberty. I remember years ago, uh, this is a teaching from James Dobson many, many years ago, and he said that there was a school close to a freeway, and the children would be outside for, for uh, recess, and they would just sort of stick right around the school because there was roads going and lots of traffic going everywhere around them. And then they put a fence around close to the roads, but a fence around, a protective barrier around, and then the children just ran all over the place. Isn't it interesting? You see those boundaries produce security. And we think that boundaries hinder us. Well, when they're, when they're lovingly and firmly placed, those boundaries produce freedom. And if you look at those boundaries I just put up there, they're thicker at the, at the early part and they're narrow at the top. You see, the goal is to move from law to principle. When you start out, I, I remember I used this illustration where we live, we have, we live really close to a road and the traffic flies back and forth. And so our, our, we told our children, you will not play in the front yard. We have a big backyard. You can play in the backyard. You can't, you can't play in the front yard. We didn't want the ball running out in the road and children running after it and getting hit. So that was for their safety. We would go, and the mailbox was across the road, so we would take our children and pick them up and carry them across, and we'd go get the mail, either Grace or I. And then after a while, we would take their hand, and we'd walk out there, and we would, and, and you see, but we said, you know, we gotta, you got to be with Dad and Mom. Just don't go running out there and get the mail. And then later on, as they got older, we would take them out there, and we would stand there and let them go across. But we would say, we got to look both ways, listen, because there's a curve right up the road from us. And, and you got to listen. Listen for a car coming, truck coming. You look. Well, now, now you look both ways, you can go. And after a while, you see that they can handle that. Guess what you do? You say, hey, go get the mail. And they run out and get the mail. What did we do? We had boundaries in place first. They were governed by rules. And later on, you teach them principles. You teach them how to. And after a while, they have the freedom to keep on rolling. That's, that's how healthy boundaries work. They're, they're Early on, they're heavier, they, they get narrower because you want them to experience maturity and freedom. Okay, so it's a what it is, is it's a balance of grace and truth. Grace and truth are balanced. And it's, it's a balance to learn how to do that. But it produces mature children. Okay, and it also teaches right concepts of God because this is a model that models what God is like for us. His justice, His mercy. It, it's, it's what produces right concepts of God. But now here's discipline built on per, a performance-based acceptance. And oftentimes, this was years ago, a lot of, our, a lot of us, I, I run into, I, I, I communicate a lot with the conservative Anabaptist people, Amish, uh, uh, Horse and Buggy Mennonite, uh, uh, Weaverland Conference, Black Bumper Mennonite. I, I talk to a lot of those groups, 
And, and quite a few of those people even attend our own fellowship back home because they've come out of some of that. But here's what I see is many of them have been raised with this model in line, this model in mind. And so walls create feelings of being controlled or trapped. And see, see, there's the boundaries. And so parents just simply say, no, you're not doing that. This is not, no. You, you know, this is the rule in our home. This is going to be the rule in our home. It's not going to change. Okay, you see, it, the boundaries aren't going to get narrower and freer. This is just, this is, this is inflexible. <clears throat> so walls create feelings of being controlled or trapped, and it produces rebellion and anger. I think you've all seen it. It's an overbalance on God's truth, and it's, it's not focused on discipline. You see, belonging, love, and significance aren't there, but punishment is. You step out of line, you're going to get punished. Okay? I know in sitting in a room like this, and you know what's interesting? Most of, our, most of the, the younger generation is sitting over here, and a lot of the older ones are here and there. Uh, you know what's interesting is this group don't quite understand that, but this group understands it pretty well because they haven't experienced some of that. Our, our, the culture has changed. It is changing. What we have to be careful is, is that pendulum don't swing too far the other way. That's pretty big. And what this does, it communicates I'm not loved. And it produces wrong concepts of God. I, I talked about this Friday night. Who is God? Well, he's somebody up there with a big stick waiting to hit me when I step out of line. You see, that comes out of this model of parenting. And then there's the passive parents. And that is, they're unsure of boundaries. There's, uh, they don't put boundaries in place. They, they, oftentimes, these parents come out of the ones of the previous one. And they overreact, and so they take away the boundaries because they were raised in a very rigid in, environment. And so now the, the children are unsure of boundaries. There's a lack of respect for authority, and I think we all see this. Insecurity disguised as arrogance. You see, arrogant, arrogant children, they're not probably arrogant. They're probably insecure. Lack of self-discipline, irresponsibility. It, it produces children in adult bodies. That's what it does. And it produces wrong significance of God, wrong concepts of God, and it says... It communicates to our children, I'm not significant enough for them to care. Man, I've heard stories like that, too. So here are the foundations for life. I belong, and I know, and feel belonging. Feel belonging. Is it important for us to feel? Feels, feeling your, I am loved, and I feel loved. You know, I'll, I'll, talk to a hurting, I'll talk to a hurting couple or a hurting person, and I'll say, do your parents love you? Yeah, my parents love me. Uh, do you feel loved by your parents? No, I don't feel loved by my parents. Did you hear that? Do you hear, I mean, do you get that? Yeah, they, they know, they know. Their par parents are supposed to love their children. And yeah, I know my parents love me. Otherwise, they wouldn't put food on the table and I wouldn't have any clothing to wear. So I know my parents love me, but they do not feel loved. It is important for us to experientially know love through feeling it too. I feel needed and feel important to the family. I know where the boundaries are and what is acceptable and not acceptable. When those things are in place, now we can build life on it. But what do we do when these are missing? What do we do when these things are missing? Well, we need to receive, and here's, and here's the wrap up here. We need to receive honor from God our Father by hearing His voice. So would you just... Pause with me. 
Because I would like to ask the Father for something right now. Father, we're going to be looking at words that come from you. We're going to be looking at your word. And Father, you know every heart in this room. You know every need in this room. You're the God that sees us, just like you saw Hagar. You saw her pain. You saw her hopelessness. You saw her, her, just her, her anguish. You saw her tears. There's nothing about us that you don't know. You know what every need is in each heart. So, Father, as we look at your word, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, because your words are spirit and they are life, would you implant your truth to fulfill, to fill the need and the void that's missing so that people who are bound, anyone here who is bound by a missing link can have that link filled in and repaired stronger than ever. Would you, would you do that in the name of Jesus so that people can walk out of this place healthier and whole and ready to handle life? Thank you, Father. I ask that in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> Jack Frost, Experiencing the Father's Embrace. Anybody acquainted with that book? Okay. He says this, It's difficult to be a father until you first become a son. What is he saying there? What, is, what does he mean by that? He means that, you know, if I don't understand what it's like to be a, a, a son of God, then I'll have a hard time understanding how to be a father to my children. I need to understand what it's like to be a son, a much loved, much cared for, with significance and belonging to my heavenly father. Then I can give that to my children. So isn't it interesting when, when, when Jesus says, when you pray, say, Father. I've had many people say they can't pray to Father because Father isn't somebody they are interested in praying to because of their Father. That's huge. But when you pray, say, Father, what does that do? What does that mean to you? How does that impact you? But God, Jesus tried to show us, and he did. And so we, 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 looked, at, we looked at that Friday evening. Now, this is eternal life that they might know you the only true God. You see, what you want to know is you want to know this God who truly is. Not a God that you have conjured up because of your hurt and your woundedness and what you think he might be like, but who he truly is. And so what we did, and, and I, I put this up again, and this, we looked at this Friday night, but many of you weren't there. But the Lord came down. He proclaimed his name, Jehovah, to Moses. Because Moses said, show me your glory. And God says, okay, I'll show you my glory. Meet me at the top of the mountain. And he came down and he proclaimed his name, Jehovah, Jehovah. You see, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. Those who run into it are safe. The name of the Lord has power because of who he is. And so he says, here's my name. Here's what my name means. And he, in his own words, God's own words, he told Moses what he's like. And the very first word that he describes himself with, God himself describes with, is compassion. Isn't that amazing? Aren't you glad that that is the number one word that describes who Father God is? Do you want to pray to a God of compassion? Uh-huh. Yeah. And then... Is there a big stick in this whole list? Well, let's keep on looking. The next word would be, oh, he is a merciful God. He is a God who, he's gracious. He gives us something that we don't deserve. He is, he's, is abounding in that. But he's compassionate. He's gracious. And he is slow to anger. 
He doesn't get angry quickly. He's slow to anger. Isn't that a beautiful picture about a father you would love to have? Not one that's ready to fly off the handle every time you step out of line. Maybe that was your dad. But this isn't God. This isn't your heavenly father. And abounding in love. Isn't that amazing? His love don't quit. It just keeps on coming. It just keeps on coming. God is love. His very name is love. He's abounding in faithfulness. When he says something, he'll do it. He, he don't promise something and not deliver. He maintains love to thousands. He forgives iniquity, rebellion, and sin. He covers the entire spectrum of our failures. We looked at iniquity as being the motive. It's the reason why we want our own way, and so we become our own God, and so we sin. But then the, the rebellion is the attitude. We have a rebellious attitude because we're going to go my, our way regardless, and then the sin is the action. And God says, I'm going to forgive what you did. I'm going to forgive the attitude that you did it in, and I'm going to forgive you the very motive of why you did it. Isn't that amazing? God will cover every aspect of our failure. That's the kind of God we have. So when you say, when Jesus says, when you pray, say, Father, say, that's the kind of Father who I am praying to. That's my God. That's my God. Yeah. So we need to receive honor from God our Father by hearing his voice. And so we're going to hear his voice. Love and belonging. I know and, that I know and feel that I belong and am loved. Jeff read Ephesians in, in the second chapter. The last part of the third chapter of Ephesians, he says... Paul prays, he says, I keep asking that you would have the power, I keep asking the Father, that you would have the power to grasp. The power to grasp. That means that you would have the ability to understand and see and feel how wide, how deep, how long, how high is what? The judgment of God, right? No. He says, the love of God that surpasses knowledge. He's saying, I'm, I'm just asking that you have the ability to feel it. Now look, what's, look what happens here. Listen to what 1 John 3, 1 says. Oh my goodness. He asks this question. How great is the love the Father has bestowed, King James says. The NIV says lavish. The Father has lavished on us that we could be called children of God. And then he makes a statement. And that is what we are. Do you know, when you receive Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord... By believing in him, you become a child of God. That is what you are. That's your identity. You see, God wants to adopt us as his sons and daughters. The Father has, look at, look at that. How great is the love. You see, we're loved. We get love from our Father. How great is that love? It's beyond our comprehension. You, you are loved. Father, there's people in this room that, that never really received love and really felt loved even by their parents or grandparents or anybody else, they never really felt that unconditional love. But Father, you are saying that you love us beyond our comprehension. Father, would you fill us with that love? Would you fill that void that's missing here in this room right now? May they have a grasp by the power of the Holy Spirit to know how loved they are. Would you do that, Father, in the name of Jesus? That we can be called the children of God. That's what we, there's belonging. There's belonging. You belong to the Father. Wow. Wow. And here, I just, you know what, I just went over this. Ephesians 3. I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have the power to grasp. So there's love. And then the power to grasp means that you can feel it. You can experience it. And to know this love. 
I am loved. You see, Paul is praying. He understood that when these foundations were missing, people were going to struggle. And so his prayer is asking that God, through his Holy Spirit, would meet and fill these voids, these foundational needs that God put in every single person. And that's when you look at the New Testament. As you read the scriptures, you watch how often in the New Testament this, these voids are being, being filled by the truth of the word. I'm just seeing, once you start seeing this, it just it starts jumping out at you. It's a beautiful thing. And then in John 17, verse 23, is, is, this, is, this is amazing. This is an amazing scripture. This is Jesus talking to his father. And he says, I'm trying to let the world know that you have loved them even as you have loved me. I don't know about you. Is that pretty big for you to comprehend that God loves you as much as he loves Jesus? That's pretty hard for me to understand. But he does. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm trying to let them know. I'm trying to show them that you love them as much as you love me. That's, that's huge. And then I feel needed and important to God's family. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. That should give you a huge amount of significance that your body is actually where God lives. God lives in your body. That's significance. That's amazing significance that God has chosen to live in my body and your body. Wow. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Peter, once again, is... And you see, Peter wasn't given these things. He had... Peter had an attitude. You ever notice that? But man, when he finally grasped and understood how much God loved him, he started communicating it to us. That's amazing. That's amazing. You are a chosen people. Do you know you're chosen? You're a royal priesthood. You are one of God's ministers. You're a holy nation. You're a people who belong to God. Why? Because you believe. It's by faith believing. That's amazing. You see, right there, it is all there. Love, belonging, and significance in what Peter says right there. And then Jesus says to the disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Wow. That's amazing, isn't it? That God chose you. God chose you. He chose you. Then it says the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone, he accepts his son. Listen, I don't like discipline. I don't like discipline. But you know, I have come to, you know, if I, could, if I could sit here and tell you stories like every single one of you could sit in here and tell stories. But you know, going back to the very fact that we couldn't have children, that seemed very painful and hurtful because Grace had an ovarian abscess that burst and took away her ability to have children. Um, I, we had lots of difficult stories going up through life. Many difficult stories. Our... Our, uh, our daughter had a birth defect, which needed some major surgery to, to correct. Man, that was a difficult time in our life. Our son got Lyme disease. He got so sick, and, he, and it lasted for years and years and years. And it, we, it just, it costs, the, the amount of money we spent, I think we could have bought another, another property for what we tried to, to try to find answers and find solutions for it. We, we couldn't. We, it, there were just no answers wasn't diagnosed until many, many, many years later. 
He got sick when he was 12, didn't get diagnosed until his later 20s. Yeah, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? You see, life's been difficult. Life's been tough. Our grandson, our two-year-old grandson, got cancer. I just ran into a relative of the little girl that was getting treated with him. Cameron's now 17. He's still living, but the little girl that was getting treated with him died. You see, it was just a difficult journey. Three or four years of chemotherapy and, and treatment. You, you know, every single person here can tell me stories of your family, very, very similar. So I'm not standing here telling you sob stories. I'm telling you that you need, you know, when I look at what happens to me in life, I start saying, Father, would you use this to develop your nature and your character in me? I want to learn. I want to become the person you want me to do. I could get angry, I can get bitter, and I can throw in the tail. Or I can say, God, you meant it for evil. God, I mean, they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. The devil meant it for evil, but Father, you mean it for good. And you know, today when I look back, I couldn't be where I am. I wouldn't be, I would not be here if I wouldn't have gone through those problems. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. This teaching has come out of our experience of hurt and pain. And I, don't want, I, want, I want you free. I want you free. I want the word of God. I want the power of God to set you free. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. My, and here it is. My father loves me. He chose me. I belong. I know and I feel that belonging. I am loved and feel loved. I feel wanted and I'm important to God. And through his word, through his word, I know where the boundaries are and what's acceptable and not acceptable. And because of that, I can rest in him. Okay. Father, thank you. Thank you for calling our lives together this morning. But more than that, Father, thank you for providing, providing the significant uh, foundations for life that we need. We need, we need to know that we belong, and we belong to you. you. You cared enough to become one of us, and you went through horrible torture and rejection and lied to, falsely accused, spit on, tortured and hanging on a cross, and while you were there, you still cared for the people around you. You loved them even while you were suffering. Father, thank you that you on the cross is supreme agape love. And there you suffered well so that we could be free. Would you help us to learn also to suffer well, knowing that you will develop in us your nature and your character, and you will bring us out as gold tried in the fire. Thank you, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen.